Well, let me introduce myself. My name is Ben, and I'm the pastor of Middle School Ministries here at Blackhawk. Welcome to those of you live here in the room together, anybody listening on the podcast and uh, watching online or worshiping from one of our other sites and venues. Uh, Shout out to uh, Fitchburg and downtown, across town, and across the hall in uh, the Gallery and Traditions. This is our 10th week in a series that we've called Unexpected Kingdom. We're working through the gospel, the good news, according to Mark. And the good news is that God's rule, his reign, his kingdom is breaking through his love and justice and truth. His healing and power have arrived, and this is good news that has come in an unexpected form. Last week, we talked about the unexpected power source of the kingdom, that faith in the king is what powers the kingdom. Not faith that Jesus can do this or that, but but faith that he is king, he is Messiah, and we should fall at his feet. We owe him our trust, our allegiance, Uh, and this faith, strangely, is what powers the kingdom. Today, as a direct follow-up to that, I get to tell a really good story. I love a good story, and this It's a good story that packs a wallop. So if you have a Bible or your Mark journal or a Bible app on your phone, you can turn with me to the book of Mark, chapter 6. We're going to be in chapter 6. If you don't have a Bible, that's fine. You can just listen along uh, while I am reading from the text. A few key verses we'll put on the screen. Now, I'm going to pick up right where we left off last week. And the very first sentence in this story mentions exorcism. Now, I'm not going to touch on that topic today. We talked about Jesus the exorcist on September 29, and you can go back and catch that message on our podcast or website if you missed it. All right. Mark 6, starting in verse 7. Game on. Calling the 12 to him, Jesus began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over impure spirits. He's sending them out to do the kind of work that he's been doing. Oh, this is, this is big stuff. And these were his instructions. Take nothing for the journey except a staff. No bread, no bag, no money in your belts. Wear sandals, but not an extra shirt. Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave that town. And if any place will not welcome you or listen to you, leave that place and shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. Okay, so Jesus is sending out his closest followers and inviting them to do the kind of work that he's been doing, and he's giving them instructions. Is it just me, or are Jesus' instructions a little weird, right? Like, take nothing... Shake the dust off your feet. I don't know about you. I'm, I'm a little bit confused on first reading here. Why, why are these instructions here? And why did Mark include these details in his version of the story? Hmm. Let's keep reading. So they went out and preached that people should repent. They drove out many demons. Wow and anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. King Herod heard about this, 
for Jesus had become well known. Some were saying, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead, and that is why miraculous powers are at work in him. Others said he's Elijah. Still others claim he's a prophet, like one of the prophets of long ago. But when Herod heard this, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised from the dead. How did we get from a story about Jesus sending the 12 with authority to do all kinds of crazy, amazing stuff, and now we're talking about Herod beheading John the Baptist? What is going on? What is Mark doing here? Does he ever come back to Jesus and the 12? Let's see, Herod, John, John, Herod, John, Herod, Herod, John, the head of John the Baptist, there we go, beheaded in prison. Okay, here is the end of this story. We're gonna put it on the screen. Uh, on hearing of this, John's disciples came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. The apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all they had done and taught. Hmm. Okay, if, if I'm Mark's editor or writing instructor or whatever, I'm taking out my big red pen and I'm circling this and I'm going to say needs transition right here, right? Because he's just going from one to the other without bringing us along with him. It's almost as if Mark is saying, well, this is what I've been talking about all along, but it sure doesn't seem that way when we first encounter it. In fact, it seems like this whole story about Herod and John the Baptist is completely unnecessary for the narrative. If we were to cover up all of these verses from verse 14 to 29, here's what it looks like. It reads so naturally. You don't need the story. They went out, preached to people should repent, drove out many demons, and anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. And the apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all that they had done and taught. They went out and then they came back and talked about it. And the people were coming and going so they didn't have a chance to eat. So Jesus said, let's go away to a quiet place and get some rest. It reads so naturally, except for this massive tangent in the middle about Herod beheading John the Baptist. It's like, it's like Mark took this story about, uh, about Jesus sending the 12 and he's just like, cut it in half, and put something else in the middle. Does anybody see what's going on here? Does anybody in the room have an idea? Let me hear it. Oreo cookies, yes, that's right, for the win, yes. For those of you who uh, haven't been around the past few weeks, this is our third Oreo cookie passage from the Gospel of Mark. The technical term is intercalation, which means a sandwich story where Mark takes one story, cuts it in half, and puts another story in the middle, just like an Oreo sandwich cookie. So, crumb filling. So, now, uh, some of us might be these, uh, like, when you eat your Oreo, like these twist and eat the filling first kind of people. If that's you, I mean, that's, that's a fine way to eat an Oreo. I'm I'm, I'm, I'm not going to pick a fight about how we should eat our Oreos. I mean, I want to pick that fight, but in Jesus' name, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say one. <laughs> but, but for Mark, he specifically wants his listeners to hear the stories together because in Mark's mind, they have something to say to each other when we experience them. Oh. Together, mm-hmm. Oh my goodness, I am learning right now. This is amazing. I love the Gospel of Mark. It's so good, so good. 
Okay. All right. So, if you're in the front row, let me know if I got something in my teeth, okay? Great. All right. So, now that we know we're dealing with a sandwich story, uh, the next question for us is, why? Why does Mark put these two stories together? And to address that question, we're going to dive into the creme filling, that story in the middle, which uh, starts in verse 14. And the very first word of this story gives us a hint. Mark calls this man King Herod. And there's some irony at play there. This man was sometimes called king, and he liked to be called king, but technically he wasn't king. He was a tetrarch, which means he had inherited one quarter of his father's uh, territory for reign. And his was a client state of Rome, which uh, in short terms means that he was only sort of in charge. Okay. Uh, Fair warning, this story gets ugly. King Herod heard about this ministry of the 12, for Jesus' name had become well-known. People were offering these different theories, and then verse 16, Herod says, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised from the dead. For Herod himself had given orders to have John arrested, and he had him bound and put in prison. He did this because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, whom he had married. Okay, throughout the story, don't get confused by the names. Uh, Herod is the king, and Herodias is his wife. Historical documents uh, from outside the Bible fill in some missing details. This isn't a widow. This is, I like my brother's wife, and so they both got divorced and then remarried each other. Normally, it might have led to ostracism or worse in their culture and society, but because these are two people with the privilege of power, they were able to get away with it, at least for a while. It leads to a war later, but that's a story for another day. Okay. For John had been saying to Herod, it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So Herodias nursed a grudge against John and wanted to kill him. But she was not able to because Herod feared John and protected him, knowing him to be a righteous and holy man. When Herod heard John, he was greatly puzzled, yet he liked to listen to him. Finally, the opportune time came. On his birthday, Herod gave a banquet for his high officials and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. And when the daughter of Herodias came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his dinner guests. The king said to the girl, ask me for anything you want and I'll give it to you. And he promised her with an oath, whatever you ask, I will give you up to half my kingdom. All right. Brief pause. Uh, The dancer is Herod's stepdaughter. Beyond that, Mark leaves most of the details of this story to his listener's imagination. Two observations that we can make with confidence about this scene. First, 
The dancer is described as a girl. We don't know her precise age, but importantly, everyone else in this story is a powerful adult. The story is consistent with other historical accounts of ancient kings. These men had power, they were into pleasure, they were probably drunk, and they were enjoying themselves with their friends. Meanwhile, there's one girl in the room. Who has the power in that situation? Any attempt to paint her as the villain in this scene, which has been done far too often throughout church history, very much misses the mark. Second thing we can say uh, with confidence here, Herod just made an oath that he has no way of fulfilling. Whatever you ask, I will give you up to half my kingdom. <laughs> he can't do that. He doesn't have a kingdom. He is a puppet of Rome. Most he could maybe say was, oh, I could let you be caretaker of a few acres by the sea. Uh, you know, if uh, Caesar approves the request and doesn't uh, have me beheaded for making such a frivolous ask of him. <laughs> oh, gosh. King. Let's keep reading. Whatever you ask. She went out and said to her mother, what shall I ask for? Oh, that's right. This is the opportune time for Herodias. This girl has been exploited by her mom. The head of John the Baptist, she answered. At once the girl hurried in to the king with the request. I want you to give me right now the head of John the Baptist on a platter. King was greatly distressed. But because of his oaths and his dinner guests, got to keep up appearances, he did not want to refuse her. So he immediately sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. The man went, beheaded John in the prison, brought back his head on a platter. He presented it to the girl. She gave it to her mother. On hearing of this, John's disciples came, took his body, and laid it in a tomb. I get to the end of the story, and I don't know whether to cry or yell or give up or just, like, go to Elver Park and watch innocent kids play. Can I ask us a question? Are we shocked by a story like this? I feel like I'm, I'm a little bit of both. Like, I'm both shocked and not shocked. Uh, on the one hand, my life is far removed from events like these. So to think that things like this are real events involving real people, it's just horrific for me to consider. On the other hand, well, it kind of just sounds like people with power and no consequences, who are free to do whatever. 
this story probably would not have been that shocking to Mark's original audience. This is just how kings operated in their day. And let's be honest, power still operates like this in our time. Here are some of the ways that power operated in this story. Someone's imprisoned and killed for speaking what's right against powerful people. There's infidelity and then avoiding the consequences that normal people would have for that. Child exploitation, probably alcohol abuse, and then leadership decisions, some of them just right on the moment, some of them very calculated, all based on fear, revenge, ego, and entertainment. I read that list, and Herod's kingdom was not the first nor the last to relate to their power and influence in this way. So that's the middle story. <laughs> what about King Jesus? What about his power? The power of his royal court and his entourage. After reading this story in the middle, does that shed a light on some of the things that were confusing about the outer story? Let's dive into the text. Well, he sends them out two by two with authority. This is a real king with a real kingdom, and he's giving away his authority. He's not here to entertain his followers. He's here to empower them. This is the one place in Mark's gospel where they're called apostles, that word in verse 30, which means that whatever they do, it's Jesus working through them. They're not just like his representatives. It's like, we are Jesus, come to you. And they're doing his work. And importantly, it's a work that brings healing to others. Whoa. Next, he tells them to take nothing for the journey. Jesus isn't here to flaunt his wealth at a lavish party. Rather, he sends his followers with empty pockets as a statement about the values of his kingdom. They go out as the poor and hungry to preach among those who are also poor and hungry and heal in their midst. This is a kingdom of outsiders. Next, what about the geography of Jesus' kingdom? Well, it's not defined by the geopolitical boundaries of the 12 tribes of Israel. Instead, it's wherever the 12 apostles go, there the kingdom is. And wherever it is welcomed with hospitality, when you enter into the house and they welcome you, that's a sign that the faith that empowers the kingdom is in that place. And likewise, if any place doesn't welcome you or listen to you, leave that place. The kingdom isn't there. 
This thing about shaking the dust off your feet. That's what Jewish people in this time would do when they re-entered Israel after traveling to foreign lands, to pagan kingdoms. They would just shake that pagan earth off their feet. I'm back in holy territory. So if you shake the dust off your feet when you leave a Jewish town, that is a profound act. You see here, the the ambassadors of the king come not with weapons of war, but with nothing. And the conquest of the kingdom is not through might, but rather through wherever it is invited in. The kingdom is there, and it can't be defined by any of the political boundaries that could be drawn on a map. This is so different from Herod or Rome. Finally, after the story, apostles gathered around and because the folks were crowding around, Jesus said, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. Oh, Jesus says, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place. Get some rest. Oh, that feels nice. (laughs) What kind of a king is Jesus? He's the king who cares. Not just about what we produce for his kingdom, which is also a gift from him, but for who we are, what we need. (laughs) Much like uh, last week's text was not primarily about healing, but that's what we needed to talk about. Some of us here uh, need to just sit on that sentence for the rest of the message. Come with me to a quiet place and rest. And and so if if you choose to take a nap for the last 10 minutes of the sermon, I'll take that as a sign that you're listening to the Holy Spirit's voice in this moment. Okay, besides, besides rest, what do these stories have to say to our lives? We hear the story about the ugliness of Herod and, and his entourage. And then we read the story about King Jesus, a very different kind of king. How do these stories speak into our lives? Well, it seems to me that Mark wants us to hear these stories together so that we will catch that stark contrast between the two kings and in in particular, the ways that they and their royal court relate to power. It seems to me that followers of Jesus should take a very unexpected approach to how we relate to our power and influence in the world. Because when Jesus says kingdom of God, that's not a throwaway line. He means kingdom. I'm not king. Jesus is king. This is a power structure. What kind of power structure? It's an upside down power structure. Totally unexpected. Power that empowers. Power 
spent and given away for the benefit of others. Power that comes not with violence, but power that only enters in where it is welcomed with hospitality and trust. So different. When we speak to those of us who are still figuring out whether we buy this whole Christianity thing, if, if you're sick of the way power operates in this world, come to King Jesus. Oh, I am sick of how power operates in this world. But it's not just out there. I see my heart. You know, like I read that list of things that King Herod and his entourage were responsible for, and I want to say, oh, I'd never do anything like that. But my heart knows better. If I had the unchecked power of King Herod, my heart would be capable of any of those kinds of choices. You know how I know? Because I feel how my heart can pull me sometimes toward these self-serving, ugly choices with the power that I do have. I mean, I'm no king, but I have a job. I work with people and for people. There's power there. I'm no king, but I have some money. That's power. I'm no king, but I'm a son. I'm a brother. I'm a husband and dad. I'm a neighbor. I'm a friend. In each of those relationships, I have influence. And the choices that I make can build others up. Tear them down. My choices have power. I'm no king, but I have some power. We all have power. It doesn't matter where we are in the different social ladders that we occupy. And how we use our power reveals which king we're following. How I choose to use my power and influence in any given situation reveals whether I'm following King Jesus or King Herod in that moment. I might say I'm following King Jesus, but do my actions back that up? Am I making choices with my influence that build others up or am I making self-serving choices with my power? Who's my king? If we embrace this vision that Mark is painting of Jesus' kingdom and the upside-down power, power that empowers and gives itself away, he could transform the way that we enter every room and situation for the rest of our lives. And I am not exaggerating. I mean the snot out of that sentence. Transform everything. Let me paint a picture of what this could look like. When one of us has talent, we have power. And if we're following King Jesus, we might, say, choose to become lab partners in freshman biology with that person in the class who has a hard time in that subject in order to help them succeed. When one of us gets a modest raise at work, we have power. And if we're following King Jesus, 
We might think about increasing our generosity before we think about increasing our personal comfort. When, when a family member is mean to us, strangely, we have power in that moment. And if we're following King Jesus, we might pause before we just spout off everything we think that person deserves to hear. When one of us is in the majority in any given situation, we have power. And if we're following King Jesus, we might seek out actively to hear the perspectives of those in the minority, whatever kind of majority-minority dynamic that is. In our neighborhoods, in dorms and apartment buildings, we have power. And if we're following King Herod, it's all about keeping up with the Joneses. But if we're following King Jesus, it's about reaching out to the Joneses, getting to know our neighbors, building bridges with them, sharing our stuff with them, sharing our lives with them. When one of us gets picked for the team or hired or promoted or swiped right or whatever, we have power in that situation. And if we're following King Jesus, we can receive that recognition graciously and even speak highly of the person not chosen. On the other hand, when one of us is rejected, we have a different kind of power in that situation. And if we're following King Jesus, we could cheer for the person who was chosen, even as we acknowledge our personal disappointment. When each one of us comes to a pivotal moment in our lives, and we won't even know it's been coming until long after it's passed us, how we relate to our own power and influence in that moment will shape the people that we become, and it could even shape the world around us. And if we choose to embrace Jesus' upside-down view of power in that moment, we will look back and say, praise God, thank you, Jesus, for leading me in this strange and unexpected way. Gosh, I look forward to the stories that we will be able to tell in the years to come of what it has meant for us to follow Jesus with this unexpected, upside-down view of our power and influence in the world. How we use our power reveals which king we're following. If we're sick of how power works in this world and in our own hearts, we could consider following an unexpected king. Let's pray together. King Jesus, thank you for your leadership, which went all the way to the cross and continues through your empowerment of us today. Thank you for the opportunity to celebrate communion together today, that ultimate act of you giving away everything for our benefit.
Pray that you would show each one of us how to follow you in the ways that we use our influence and power in all our relationships. All God's people said, amen.